Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. everybody and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the exciting and scandalous sides of American history. We are at the start of kind of a new school year. It is uh, shortly after Labor Day, which is sort of traditionally kind of the back to school, back to work feeling here in DC. So uh, we're definitely seeing a shift into what I hope will be fall weather very soon. Uh, we've got a great episode coming up for you. First, of course, as always, I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the Rebecca's. <laughs> um, we are we are here. We have been out guiding all summer, and I can tell you, I'm excited for fall. It doesn't quite feel like it yet, but when those temperatures drop below 80, I'm a much happier tour guide. Oh yeah, in the so summer. Much. So if you've been thinking maybe you want to join us for a tour, fall's a really nice time. We've got some great fall tours coming. We're getting into the spooky season, so we'll be launching more and more ghosts and scandal tours. Um, but we've got some great tour options coming up, and the weather is getting much more enjoyable. So check us out, dcbyfoot.com. We would love to see you on tour. And of course, a huge shout out to our patrons who really keep the lights on, make this podcast happen. We could not and would not do it without our patrons. Patrons, you get discounts and free tour tickets, so be sure to be checking your tier benefits and email us if you have any questions or uh, want to try to use those. But thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our listeners, but especially our patrons. So we are doing what we have done for the last kind of three years of this podcast. We're using Labor Day as a little reminder that it's not just a three-day holiday. It's not just a little, you know, day off and not just the last little glimpse of summer. It's not when the pools close, at least here in DC. <laughs> it is about the hard work of everyday mm-hmm. Americans, the the workers who have fought hard yep. <laughs> to give us the rights that we enjoy. So labor history is so important. It's something that matters to both of us a lot. We both come from strong union families. And I know Rebecca's always saying labor history is American history. Uh, we cannot really understand America without understanding the labor fight. True, very much. I always also say that we need to teach the history of labor in every high school in this country, but that's a whole different fight. Um, labor history is American history. Labor Day is not just a day off. I mean, it is a day off, which we're very grateful for. But the reason we have the day off 
is because people have fought for it. It is to organize, to honor people who have fought and in many cases died for different sorts of worker protections, different kinds of laws that protect workers and protect their rights and the dignity of work. And not only is labor history, it is American history, but it's also women's history. And that particularly interests me and Becca too. The history of organized labor is very much tied together with the history of women, the history of women's uh, activism on the political stage. Uh, There are a lot of intersections between labor activism and women's history. There's a lot of that that kind of threads through American history. So they're intertwined. Uh, Women's labor is, was, and is continuing to be uh, less valued monetarily. And so the history of labor is often the history of women striking because they want better treatment and better pay and all of those things. And so that's kind of important. It is near and dear to our hearts as historians, as women, as people who just come from labor backgrounds. So that is why we love a good Labor Day, labor history, uh, September type of story. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. That's right. And this is a really, really great topic. I think it's really at the intersection of all these things that we're talking about. And it actually is going to parallel really nicely, not just with our other labor episodes, but a couple of other episodes where we've really talked about this sort of post-Civil War America, where we are 15, 20 years after the Civil War, when there's a lot of shifts happening across the United States as we're starting to see some radical-ish changes to the South post-Civil War. So um, what's your topic for today, Rebecca? We are going to talk about the Atlanta Washerwoman's strike in 1881. So kind of put us in a little context here. This is an area of American history that I feel like gets glossed over for a lot of reasons. It's not as, you know, we're post-Civil War. Very exciting. Uh, About 15 years out from the end of the Civil War, we have not quite gotten to the height of the Gilded Age yet. And we're building the blocks that will become the progressive movement, women's suffrage, labor. Those things are in there. They're coalescing. Uh, And so that leads to prohibition and things like that. So the South in particular, which obviously is where Atlanta is, uh, is still in recovery in a lot of significant ways from the Civil War. uh, And that's going to sort of be part of the story that we're going to talk about. So 1881, this will be the summertime, which... I've never been to Atlanta at all, but I understand it is not particularly hospitable in the summertime. It Um, is very hot. It's very humid. And yeah, it's a lovely, a lovely place. Atlanta is a lovely place. Georgia is a lovely state. But in the summer, especially in the 19th century, anyone doing any labor is working in some pretty inhospitable conditions, let alone hard labor. And so that's where we are. Atlanta has, at this point, poor sanitation conditions. The infrastructure is lacking, partly because of the devastation of the war. It has taken a long time to reboot and re- recover uh, in a lot of significant ways. The North is very industrialized, the South much less so. And Atlanta is on the cusp of wanting to be sort of bigger and better than they are. Uh, They're just beginning to develop. They do not have a sewer system or that's a very basic one. Uh, There's unsanitary trash on the unpaved streets. So you don't have paved streets. You have very primitive water and sewage system. This isn't really great. And that's going to become part of the impetus for all of this. Atlanta wants very much like the city fathers, the mayor, the city council and things like that. They want to position themselves as the new South. 
we're the new South, we're ready for investment, we're ready for development, we're here, we've got a good workforce, we want Northerners to give us lots of investment capital so that we can make things and do things and be. So Atlanta has a large workforce, they want to be the urban center of the New South. So we want to shift to Atlanta as the center of the South. Uh, we've got this large workforce. They're very eager to get Northern money, Northern investment. And to do that, we've got this massive workforce, a lot of formerly enslaved uh, men and women. They're working under very terrible conditions. And we're going to focus specifically on domestic labor, but I don't want to ignore the fact that there's other types of labor that's happening as well, and they're not treated that well either. So this is in so many ways slavery by a different name. They're earning wages, but they're barely subsistence wages. The conditions that they're in are terrible. They don't really have have any say they're not treated well. I think it's important to note too that this is just rife for exploitation. While we have ended the institution of slavery legally in the United States, there are almost almost no laws, right, on the books to protect workers broadly, let alone those of color, let alone those in the South. There's really no sort of regulatory body over much of the labor in the United States in this period. And again, even more so when we're talking about an overwhelmingly Black working class. And so the opportunities for exploitation, the opportunities to take advantage, things that we would commonly refer to as wage theft are rampant. There's very, very little protection. But what other opportunity do you have? It's expensive to move. It's challenging to relocate. For many of those working in Atlanta in this time period, 1881, this is the only place they've ever lived is the South or specifically Georgia. And so where do you go? There's an easy opportunity there to sort of exploit that and take advantage of that. And this is true here, but also true more broadly throughout the South at the time. Correct. Half of the city's Black workforce are women, which makes some sense. Half of the population is women, generally. A third of these women are the sole wage earners in their families. So they're supporting their families on their own. They're trying to keep their community together. Black women working were household workers. 98% of them, Black women, are working a domestic job. On average, women start working as young as 10, and I don't, shouldn't say women, that's a girl. If you're 10, you're it's a girl. a child. <laughs> and they work until 65 or older. So this is a long career. You're working six days, sometimes seven days a week. Usually it's brutal. Uh, and by the 1880s, more Black women are laundresses uh, than any other type of domestic work. There are more laundresses, in fact, in Atlanta than common laborers. So there's a lot of them. And only a small portion at this time, only a small portion of white women are going to work for pay. And almost every white family except the absolute poorest of the poor can afford a washerwoman. So that's what you're, you're farming out your, some of your domestic labor, your, particularly your clothes washing to other people. And so no matter how poor you are, only the poorest of the poor white women cannot afford a washerwoman. And as soon as you get any extra money, white women are going to turn around and employ some kind of a washerwoman or a laundress. So this is an in-demand 
There's a lot of them. There's a large supply. Uh, and it is it is the most difficult of domestic chores, which is why people farm it out as soon as they can. That makes some sense. And industrialization actually will make this chore more difficult. You wouldn't think that because industrialization <laughs> is supposed to make our lives better, but apparently it does not. The reason is manufactured cloth which like cotton, right? It's a washable, rewearable fabric made clothing more available so people have more clothes. This is sort of a weird catch-22. We're in an era where it's now much cheaper and faster to produce clothing, which makes it more abundant, which makes it easier for people to buy. And again, not just wealthy families, but middle-class and even working white, working-class white families can buy more clothes than they've ever been able to buy before but then you also have to wash more. And we've not yet in the early 1880s reached the point of industrialization to have automated laundry machines that we enjoy today, which we should all be very grateful to have. There's very little machine work that can help with the work of the laundry. So you've got way more clothes. We've not yet reached that point where you can toss it into a machine and forget about it. So mm -hmm. this work has to be done. And I, I think it's very telling that this is the first thing you do when you have the tiniest bit of money is hire a washerwoman. It really showcases how grueling and terrible and time consuming this task oh is yeah. that, that all the other terrible domestic tasks, and I don't mean domestic work is terrible, but all these other time consuming tasks that existed of all the things to farm out. This is the very first thing you want to do because it is an all day affair. As you know, even today, Laundry never ends because you keep wearing your clothes. You have to keep washing them. And it is grueling, grueling labor. This is really hard work. In the North, there have grown commercial laundries. So you can send your families clothes to like some sort of, sort of commercial laundry concern. In the South, with technology lacking, they don't have that. And so almost all, even poor whites can send some wash to uh, Black women to to clean and and let me just know commercial laundries are still relying heavily on labor on sure. women's labor it is not like a laundromat like you might be envisioning in your mind perhaps okay. they're just relying uh, and more so on immigrant labor at this time poor immigrant labor but those commercial laundries are still heavily utilizing hands-on female domestic labor they just happen to have a little bit more resource and machinery to help ease the process. And they have uh, scaled it in a way that it's somewhat easier to do more in less time. And after this next bit, you are never gonna be more grateful for your washing machine ever. You should go give it a big hug right now. That's how excited you're gonna be. And this be. is this is also where the, what Rebecca was saying about um, infrastructure is gonna come into play because when you don't have a lot of access to running water, this task gets a lot harder. And this is also, I think it's very important that this happens in the summer. You're going through clothes more quickly because you're sweating more, right? Everything is You're walking on dirty, unpaved, muddy streets. Mm, yep. And this, the task of laundry, as we're about to find out, is hot. Okay, so women work, laundresses work mostly in their own homes. They make their own soap from lye, which I'm not real great at like the chemistry things, but I feel like lye is pretty rough. It's toxic and not great. They make starch from wheat bran and their wash tubs are actually beer barrels cut in half. They begin their work on Mondays and they work all the way through the week until the clothes are delivered on Saturday. 
they have to carry gallons of water from the pump or stream. Like then you have to walk, you don't have taps coming in your house. You have to walk down the street to where the local pump is or the closest stream. Then you have to haul it, gallons of it back. And then you have to put it on your stove because you have it has to be hot. And also to probably burn off some bacteria, I would imagine, right? Boil off bacteria. Then you bring this boiling hot water, again, gallons and gallons and gallons of it into dump it in these tubs that you've made from half of a beer barrel. And you have to do this fairly quickly because you're bringing lots of water. You can only carry, what, two and a half, three gallons at a time. So you have to do this quickly so that the water that's already in there doesn't cool off by the time you get to the end. So this is a, you have to work pretty quickly. You're carrying gallons of boiling hot water, which try that sometime. <laughs> it's no, not please, fun or easy. Actually, please, please don't try this at home. Please don't try this at home. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> but imagine like this is very heavy work. This, this is literally backbreaking, hauling hot liquid. And if you make a mistake and trip, you're going to get scalded. You then wash the clothes and they then have to hang them up to dry. And so they, after they dry, they hang them all over their house to dry. And then they have to iron them. And it's not like today where you have an iron that you plug into an electrical outlet and iron something. No, no. Irons have to be heated and you put them in the fireplace to heat them. So they literally are putting them in the multiple irons, literally irons in the fire. That's where the, that's where where the phrase comes from. (laughs) This is where the phrase comes from. So you have multiple irons in the fire at the same time to iron. And then you have to starch your clothes This is a time-consuming process and you're dealing with starch, you're dealing with chemicals, you're dealing with hot water, you're carrying all these things, they're dry, it's drying all over your house. This is six days of process to do this and you get one day off a week. And for all of this, the wages are four to eight dollars a month, which is insane. Criminal. Even then. Because they're doing pounds and pounds and pounds of laundry think about what a woman was wearing what a man was wearing in 18 in the 1880s there are several layers of clothes cotton certainly but some of this would have been other materials to wool and and Mm -hmm. linen and you're going to send your laundry out in mass you're going to have your washerwoman do everybody's laundry at once so you're doing and you're going to have multiple clients so you're doing probably 20 30 40 50 pounds of laundry and you are getting paid truly break it down a dollar or two a week. What is that? A quarter a day? Even if you adjust for inflation, it is insanity. These are poverty wages. It's insulting. And it absolutely anybody who looks at this goes, this should be illegal. Yes, absolutely should be illegal. Yeah. Pause for anger and exploitation sadness. That's kind of where we are. And so in July of 1881, And again, the summer, this is not a coincidence. I think there's a reason this happens in the summertime. If you're going to hit your breaking point, it's going to be when it's 100 degrees in Atlanta. Listen, I hit my breaking point when it's 100 degrees and I'm not exploited like this, you know, like this is, it's hot. You're not thinking you're sweaty. You go a little crazy with the heat. And I can imagine working with literal burning hot irons makes it even hotter. Like this is awful. So 20 women are going to form a trade organization. They call it the Washing Society. Their opponents will call them the Washing Amazons, which <laughs> honestly, like, I think that should be the name. 
for them. They should have adopted that. I don't know why they didn't lean into that one real hard. They want respect, higher pay, and autonomy over their work. They want to establish a uniform rate at $1 per dozen pounds of wash. So that's $1 for every 12 pounds that you do, which is still to me seems insane, but certainly a mass improvement over the wage that they were receiving. Yes. They get an assist from the Black ministers throughout the city. They're going to hold a mass meeting and they call for a strike, basically to achieve higher pay. And again, in the summertime, everybody's sweating through their clothes real fast. Laundry piles up. This is the ideal time to strike and they know it. You're withholding your labor at a critical moment when your labor is most needed. That is when strikes hurt the most. It's disruptive. It's going to anger people. And that's exactly what a strike is supposed to do. That's what it they're trying to do. It is supposed to disrupt the system. Exactly. I love too that we, it's just worth noting. These are women with really little to no formal education. Mm-hmm. Many of these women cannot read and write. Many of these women have never been involved in anything but an exploitative labor system, whether it was enslavement, sharecropping, and this laundress kind of work that is generational. This is something if your mother did it, you did it, and onward and onward. And yet they are able to quickly assess that this is an opportunity. They're going to seize it. They go door to door. I mean, they the way in which they're able to grow this movement quickly and effectively is really, really impressive that they're able to just sort of build this network among these women who are doing this work, this horrible backbreaking work, and sort of say, look, I know it must be really scary to risk losing the 4 to $8 a month that you rely on. Uh, yes. Again, a third of these women are the sole wage earners for their family. But if we don't do this, we're all going to fail. And what bravery, I mean, to be willing to do this. I, it really it, it blows my mind. And that they organize it. I mean, you mentioned the support of kind of the, the religious community, but that they organize this in and of themselves for themselves. Yes. Not only is it great, like imagine how bad conditions had to be for women who've been exploited their whole lives to finally say, okay, this is enough. And to do something about it in the face of all of this, all the things that are stacked up against them. They actually are also going to receive support from whitewasher women. There aren't that many whitewasher women in Atlanta at this time, but the few that there are, they get involved with this, which is an extraordinary little bit of interracial solidarity uh, at the time. So they're really you're seeing uh, white women decide that they're not going to take it anymore and stand in solidarity with their African-American sisters, which is uh, sadly not common enough at the time. And in three weeks, this strike grows from 20 women to 3,000 strikers. And this is at a time when it's the summertime, it's busy. A lot of these women, like Becca said, can't read and write. So they're not looking at the newspaper. This is through word of mouth, by and large. They're getting this from their preachers. Uh, they're hearing it through, you know, sort of a, 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 the whisper network. And that's sort of, this is how rapidly this grows, which gives you, I think, a sense of how badly they were treated. Again, find such fertile ground. And at first, the city's like, whatever, fine. And then, like, they didn't think it's going to last. And then it does last and it gets worse. And we move into August and the city starts to panic. 
I just want to read two quick little newspaper quotes because in just a couple days into the strike, a newspaper editorial in Atlanta is basically going to say that because of their own discomfort with their life situation, these women, these laundresses are demanding, quote unquote, unreasonably high prices. And then yet, as the strike goes on about 10 days later, the same newspaper is saying that, quote, the washerwoman strike is assuming vast proportions and despite the apparent independence of the white people is causing quite an inconvenience among our citizens, end quote. So it goes real quickly from, ah, they're, they're really just moaning and complaining to, oh, we cannot function without our clean laundry. Yep, exactly. So the way um, in which they eat crow very quickly on this amuses me. Yes, very much. Looming over all of this, the city's response is that Atlanta is playing host in the fall to an international cotton exposition, uh, which is kind of like a world's fair, sort of. And so th- they want the city to look beautiful and shiny and have everybody working and everything do- going, doing what it's supposed to do. Because again, Atlanta is trying to very much position itself as the new South. They're trying to encourage investment. And so the idea that we have domestic laborers that are striking en masse and that people are going around without clean clothes is not really great from like a public relations perspective (laughs) right and so there's a they suddenly this becomes a big problem like we need to fix this and the strikers are at first they're being arrested and fined which is not great uh their landlords are raising their rents if they aren't cooperating, if they're striking. Uh, the strikers are even being visited by the authorities in their homes. And remember, this is still this is a largely white establishment, largely white police force, largely white city council or all white city council. And you're visiting black women in their homes to intimidate them. So that's not really great. This is we haven't quite gotten to the height of Jim Crow yet. Bad things can happen, and the law is not on the side of Black folks in Atlanta at this time. And so eventually, the city council gets so fed up with this, they're going to propose commercial laundry. So the same thing the North is doing, basically trying to undercut these laundresses who are working at home. They're even going to propose a $20 fee per washer to get women to settle. So basically, if you don't settle, you're going to have to pay the city 25 bucks if you don't settle by a certain date basically like, look, if you're not going to settle, we're now going to make you buy this commercial license to keep doing this work that you want to do. And uh, it doesn't really work out for the city council. They're trying just about every intimidation tactic in the book. This is literally textbook. I mean, if you yeah. if you pay attention to any strike that happens, this is what always happens, right? These sort of tactics of trying to get you to break. But these women who, again, have every reason to simply settle for a slightly better situation, to settle for a mere few dollars more, or just to go back to working because they are also now working without pay or they are without pay during this strike. Mm -hmm. Women who really rely on this money, they hold fast. And I don't think it can be overstated how incredible that is that they are so willing to put the well-being of the whole before Mm -hmm. the well-being of the individual, which is what unions are about. That's exactly what unions are about. We have power together. And so they really recognize that. And the they're so like politically astute here, so plugged in and really invested. And it's just so interesting. They're willing to pay this fee in exchange for being able to have some kind of autonomy 
over their working conditions, over their hours, over their pay. So they will say this is they want respect. They want to be treated with dignity. They want their work to be valued. They refuse these women who were many of whom had been enslaved and certainly had been exploited are going to say essentially that we're not second class. We refuse to be seen as subordinate. We do a vital, we perform a vital service. We deserve to be treated with dignity and we deserve to be paid for our labor. And it's just so brave and determined and really fantastic. And then the city realizes that all of the washerwomen are starting to inspire other domestic workers to look around at their conditions and say, hey, wait a second, I'm not treated that great either. So you see cooks, maids, nurses, teachers in some cases, they look around and they say, hey, I want better conditions too. Look at that. We should all strike solidarity together. And so you see hotel workers are going to go on strike. And again, the city is anticipating a lot of visitors coming in a few weeks for this big to do this big exposition. You need hotel workers and cooks and laborers and people like that. And suddenly the city's looking around and the magnitude of all of this, the scale of it is they can't find replacements. Yeah. Um. Some families, individual families, will start sending their laundry out to Marietta and other towns. Mm -hmm. But imagine, that's an increased cost for you. There's not nearly as many laundresses in these smaller communities in Georgia. Certainly not enough to keep up with demand. So it's like, at some point, it's a breaking point. Oh, yeah. you want this laundry done bad enough, you're going to pay more for it. You're going to pay what it's worth to you. Right, exactly. And eventually... And so there, there is pressure, I think, from the from the clients. There are right. pressures from these families on the council to finally say, look, we'll pay more. Let them let them demand more. Right. Let's pay them. The other thing the city council is continuing with at this point is, oh, goodness, what if this strike continues and it, it spreads further and further into all different aspects? What if laborers decide that they want to strike, that their conditions aren't very good? You know, you see the ripple effects of, of learning, workers learning that they, if they join together, they can be demand better treatment. And so you see the fear of like, OK, we better settle this real fast. And so that's exactly what the city council does. They reject the fee proposal, which means the laundresses win. They basically give in to almost all of the laundresses' demands. Uh, they get their raise. Uh, they're going to be treated better and with respect. It's going to establish that laundresses and sort of all Black female workers in general are going to be a force in the New South. Like if you want to establish Atlanta as the center of the New South, women are going to be a part of that. You're going to rely on women for a lot of your labor. Women deserve to be treated with respect, with dignity, and that you can't build this new South that you want to do without women, without their labor, without respecting their labor. Black women become a force to be reckoned with. And this is going to lead to a number of labor organizations, South Southern labor organizations, some of which still exist to this day. Uh, but you're seeing the very beginnings of work class consciousness and worker solidarity. And this doesn't end here. This continues to grow and keeps on going. And the other thing you're seeing is from a racial perspective, the white establishment, the city is the power in the city is all white. And they have been essentially forced to deal, to reckon with, to bargain with, to respect Black women uh, and their labor and their, uh, their demands. And so you're seeing this very 
interesting mix of a lot of different things. Not only the women women's work, but also the racial component of it is really important yeah. too. That they're willing to, essentially the city at some point has to sit down and bargain and negotiate with black workers. Yes. And that is something that other workers are going to take note of. It's mm -hmm. also one of the earliest examples in the post kind of Civil War America of sort of women's political organization, you know, organizing for a political cause broadly, if you think of political, small capital P. Um, and I think that men who are interested and involved in the labor movement see the power of women as well. So that gender power is important too, that women are going to play a key role in the labor movement, that they are, as you said, a force to be reckoned with, and that any real power for labor and workers and unions going forward. And as we get into the Gilded Age, we see the power of labor rise, but it cannot exclusively be a male movement. It has to include the work of women. And it, it, this is like one of those key moments for that. And I do want to just make note, as you mentioned, there were thousands of women that get mm -hmm. involved in this laundress strike, thousands. And we don't know many of their names, but mm -hmm. we do know six women who get arrested for their disorderly conduct. Uh, and I, I'll put that in heavy, you know, quotations there. Disorderly conduct, AKA simply saying that they're going on strike for right. their labor, but they were noted in the Atlanta paper. Their names were Matilda Crawford, Sally Bell, Carrie Jones, Dora Jones, Orphelia Turner, and Sarah Collier. They are described as a sextet of ebony-hued damsels who were charged with disorderly conduct and in each case, except for Sarah Collier, fined $5. Sarah Collier was fined $20 and she basically was put into the chain gang for not paying her $20. She refused to pay because she felt that she had a right to protest and go on strike. So those are six women whose names we know because it was noted in the newspaper, but it's important to acknowledge and recognize that each of those individual women who went on strike play an important role in labor history and women's history and American history. And I sort of just love the description of them as ebony-hued damsels, to which the paper was trying to put a sheen of respectability on arresting these working women. Yes, yep. That's exactly what, yes. It's a really fascinating, and this is going to lead to other strikes in other places, none of which are as big as Atlanta. You'll see one in Jackson, Mississippi. There's a couple in Texas at some point. Uh, but this is, for the early Jim Crow era, this is really amazing. This is an, a, such a, a brave and really fantastic example of worker solidarity, recognizing the power that they have and refusing to continue to be treated poorly. Um, so I, I love this very much and I wanted this to be our Labor Day episode this year. So we talk about a little bit about washerwomen. I love it. Um, it's just, I think, important to note at any point in our history, but I think especially where we are right now, as you listen to this, you know, there are strikes happening in various industries across the U.S., but and just an acknowledgement that we're stronger together as workers. If you're listening to this podcast, you're a worker. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I mean, I don't know, maybe we have a couple secret billionaire listeners, but otherwise, my guess is if you're listening to our podcast, you are a worker. Um, mm -hmm. So this impacts us. It's, it's our history. Mm -hmm. And we have a responsibility to know it and to be aware of it. So this is a great topic. Thank you for for. I love this the topic. Podcast. Yeah. 
And you're also seeing the the not only the development of class consciousness, but women's consciousness in the New South and in Georgia in particular. And like there's a, the it's that continues to bear fruit to this day politically. There's a there's still echoes of this in sort of the situation and what's going on in Georgia today. So this is really very impactful and critical. Excellent. Yes. So- Great topic. Thank you so much. Thank you again to all of our wonderful listeners. Thank you to our patrons. If you have questions, comments, feedback, we always want to hear from you. You can hit us up on the socials. We're on Instagram and um, Twitter, X, whatever you call it today. Um, We're also on uh, email. You can email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We are really, it's kind of the start of a new year uh, in many ways, the post-summer new year. We've got some great topics coming up. We have one that I'm deliciously excited about for next month. We're going to be digging into some juicy stuff. So we can't wait to bring you along, but we'd love to hear from you. Reach out, let us know. Let us know what you want to know about. Right, and, if you've uh, got ideas, we want to hear them. Yes, please. And we will, uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you guys so much. Thank you very much. Bye, friends. Bye. Bye.